Hello and welcome to Ideas Matter, the podcast that takes the important issues of our times and explores the ideas and intellectual trends that have shaped where we are today. This week, we feature the lecture Emotion and Reason, the seventh in our series Culture Wars, Then and Now. In this episode, we look at how the culture wars has become synonymous with a low value ascribed to the rational human subject, and how, from self-esteem to loneliness to the ever-expanding umbrella of mental health, the public sphere appears saturated with claims about emotional damage. The lecturer is Dr Ashley Frawley, Senior Lecturer of Sociology and Social Policy at the University of Swansea, and author of Semiotics of Happiness, Rhetorical Beginnings of a Public Problem. I'm, a, I'm, I'm interested in what emotion becomes in the public sphere and what kind of culture um, sees emotion as uniquely prob- problematic, as a banner behind which we should rally, as um, the forefront of a social movement or the answer to the problems that face us, the intractable problems of our time, increasingly are said to be ultimately uh, solvable through attention to emotion. Um, and so that's what my work is, is looking at. Um, and it's not just an increasing interest in emotion. So when we see, when we look at the headlines, you know, um, it wasn't just in the early 2000s that people became interested in happiness. The claim was, unhappiness is Britain's worst social problem. Or um, the concern with mental health becomes the conviction that most people don't have it. So for instance, I was walking through the foyer at Swansea, where I'm, I'm based, and a student handed me a flyer. And it said, one in four people will be affected by mental health. And I thought, well, that's pessimistic. <laughs> but mental health became a shorthand for mental ill health. It became defined by its absence. And that's increasingly uh, what, what emotion has become, and particularly positive emotions. It's this conviction that uh, most people just can't find these things in their everyday life. They, they, they cannot be trusted. The, they have to be foreclosed. The meanings have to be uh, foreclosed in advance. So it's, uh, that's why I look at positive emotions. So in this, this book that's forthcoming, I'm looking at the increased problemization of positive emotions from self-esteem to happiness uh, to well-being to now mental health. And I think it's interesting because there's this dual meaning to the word positive. So on the one hand, it's positive in the sense of good, but it's also positive in the sense of positive freedom. So the American Declaration of Independence, for instance, um, you'll hear like these happiness advocates, these experts saying like, you know, happiness has always been something that people have been really worried about. Um, uh, look at the American Declaration of Independence, the pursuit of happiness, but they, they didn't define it. You know, it's so frustrating that they didn't define it. Of course they didn't define it. It was, about negative, it was about negative freedom. It was about, you know, once you remove these obstacles of, you know, throw off the bonds of feudalism and so on, um, people would be freed to pursue whatever ends they chose, right? You would never think it, from that kind of moment of, of revolution and optimism that you would have to literally state, you know, happiness is to be found through family, healthy eating. Uh, you, you just, it, it would be ridiculous because it was about freedom, that you had faith in the human subject to be freed. So that my first book was looking at you know, um, the construction of happiness as a social problem in that way, that at, at a particular time, uh, certain well-connected uh, people in society, it was very like top-down kind of movement, um, took hold of this idea of like a- happiness expertise, that it's this, it's this special 
area of knowledge that everyday people don't have access to. Uh, happiness is a science, they said. Uh, Richard Layard, one of the, the key sort of claims makers in this, said happiness takes 10,000 hours of practice. <laughs> How can we expect children to be happy if we don't teach it in schools? So they took this idea of expertise and they, they said, uh, they said it's, it's something that, uh, that, that people don't have, everyday people don't have access to. Uh, and in fact, the fact that they don't have access to this information is actually at the heart of most of what goes wrong. And as I was finishing that book, I started to notice that um, it was that the, the language of happiness was eliding with, with well-being. And there were certain rhetorical advantages that well-being had. You know, so happiness claims makers right from the very beginning had a lot of pushback that happiness sounded a bit frivolous. So they would use things like um, subjective well-being. And, and, and journalists would be like, oh, come on, you know, we're really just talking about happiness here. So there was always this kind of tension within that because they wanted to set it up as this kind of special discourse, this very um, difficult thing that requires a lot of know-how and so on. But happiness was something that everyday people kind of felt like, you know, isn't that just sitting in a field full of daisies, a smile with, from my, my family? And they were like, no, it's pro-social spending. <laughs> no, it's really not, right? So there was this kind of pushback because although it spoke to people at this level of, uh, you know, it allowed people to communicate social problem claims at this level of everyday understanding at the same time that what we call experiential commensurability, <laughs> this connection to everyday experience, it was a little too much because then you get this, this point to this point where it's like, I'm from the government and I'm here to make you happy. And people go, no, you know? And so there was a little bit of pushback, and well-being kind of overcame that. And so it was happiness and well-being, happiness and well-being, and then gradually the language of happiness was kind of lost. Um, but it was, never, it was never fully lost in the culture. It, it sort of sinks into the, the cultural background, and it becomes part of this sort of common sense. Um, so I was noticing this, uh, and then well-being increasingly was being allied with mental health. And there's something, and, and with each one of these, these cycles of problematized positive emotional states, the problem was expanded and deepened. So, you know, ha you know people aren't happy enough becomes, you know, our well-being is under threat, and then most people will have a mental health problem at some point in their lives. Um, so that's what I'm, I'm looking into is this, this endless cycling through of positive emotion as a social problem. And actually... <laughs> it's actually expanded. You know, this is what happens. You put together a book pro project and inevitably as you get into it, you realize it's a monster. And it actually goes back much further because you could, it, so there was self-esteem. So um, I was reading John P. Hewitt's book, um, The Myth of Self-Esteem. And the subtitle of it, so this is a book written in 1998, was uh, Finding Happiness and Solving Problems in America. So the language of self-esteem actually gave way to happiness. And before that, it was mental hygiene. And before that, it was new thought or mind cure. And this same kind of story is being told in each iteration, a story about the human subject and its relationship to the world, the limits of human agency, what we can know, the place of rationality, um, and what's really important in life. And increasingly, this story that's being told is what's really important is emotion. And that ultimately, human beings can't be trusted to be rational about the world. And that really, if you want to solve problems, you have to attend to forces three quarters below the surface, to use Freud's words. Um, 
So I've taken these, uh, starting with self-esteem and looking how it morphs into happiness, into well-being, into mental health, you can see that there are some commonalities. Um, and there's some commonali commonalities in terms of the people who, what we call claims makers, the people who take hold of these things. So they tend to uh, be evangelically claimed for or campaigned around. So someone takes ownership of it and it becomes, very de becomes dedicated to spreading the cause. Um, they emphasize the scientific nature of their expertise, often and if not always, long before the research is available or conclusive. So self-esteem, they said, the science has spoken. We know now, <laughs> research says, that, self, that children need to feel confident in order to be able to learn. So we have to uh, increase uh, self-esteem in order to solve problems with educational unattainment or, or low attainment or you know, teenage pregnancy or whatever. Um, and of course, it transpired later that the, actually there was very little evidence at all. Uh, and, and then people said, well, actually it was high self-esteem that was causing these things. But you know, at the end of the day, everybody kind of agreed it was something inside of people that was ultimately to blame. Um, so third, they promoted specific programs, often with a personal twist, um, and sold them at great cost. Um, so they stood forth, they stood to gain personally and financially from the spread of these programs. So uh, another small little cycle within this is mindfulness. Um, and that's an interesting one. So John Kabat-Zinn created the first mindfulness programs. And he said that, uh, oh yeah, so there's this also this quasi-magical, even though they're, they're very much about, this is science, science hard as nails. There's also this mix of magic. So there's magical thinking and magic bullets, and it came to me in a vision. So John Kabat-Zinn literally says that mindfulness came to him in a vision uh, while he was meditating in which he saw it providing right livelihood for thousands of practitioners. <laughs> Dollar signs flash before his eyes, basically. <laughs> and it's the same thing with uh, Martin Seligman, so the founder of positive psychology from which a lot of the happiness and well-being uh, quasi-expertise comes from, uh, he said the same thing. Uh, he tells various apocryphal tales about where this, th this came from, is this e epiphany talking to his daughter and so on. But I, I, again, and the big moment came when someone wrote him a big fat check. Here you go. <laughs> and that, that's a very common thing that you see through each one of these, that they have all these little programs with these little twists, and uh, you, uh, you sell them at, at great cost. But the claims themselves are, are, are very similar. So first, they, they portray these new emotion issues as confirmed by both ancient wisdom and modern science. Uh, they promise huge savings in exchange for large upfront investments. So yes, it's going to cost a lot now when you train thousands of practitioners in my new faddish thing, but down the road when people aren't calling in sick and people are more productive, it's going to uh, pay great dividends. And if you don't do this, the cost to the NHS is however many billion pounds a year. Actually, I've got a colleague who came to me and said, uh, you know, how can I, uh, I, I I've got, I'm writing this article, how can I uh, come up with a, a cost to the NHS? Can you help me with this? It's a very, very common thing. Like if you're trying to sell a program, you just say how much it's going to cost to the NHS if people don't act. And you see this all across these, um, these problems. Um, and they tend to promote their chosen emotions as causes and solutions to seemingly a never-ending array of problems, as magic bullets or personal and social panaceas. And fourth, uh, they, interestingly, they often recognize, even implicitly, certain intractable problems of our times. And it's interesting because governments will often admit that they, they can't solve problems. Uh, they'll, they'll sometimes actually explicitly say that. 
but they promise that they can that these problems can be solved if you first attend to the emotions. So with self-esteem, it was like, okay, you know, there's persistent inequalities in society, but if we just like build up people's courage and self-efficacy, they will somehow, some way, it's a little, uh, it's a little blurry, you know, um, but then the problems will be solved. It kind of reminds me, this is a really low example, but it kind of reminds me of South Park. Anybody watch South Park? With those little, <laughs> those little gnomes, and they keep stealing things, and they say, step one, steal, it's underpants. Steal underpants. Step two, question mark, question mark, question mark. Step three, profit. It is, <laughs> it is exactly that. Step one, promote self-esteem. Step two, question mark, question mark, question mark. Step three, <laughs> utopia. And, and, and that, they, they will say that. So like they will literally say, mindfulness can affect a radical overthrow of capitalism. If only people could be made to, if only it could, be, uh, it could overcome this uh, self-attention. You know, if we could just, it, so there's this new thing called social mindfulness. So you like direct that out at institutions. And the, the, the starting point is this, is in the mind. So somehow, some way through affecting some change in the mind, uh, we will be able to uh, then direct attention to institutions, then something, 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 overthrow the institutions. And you saw this with self-esteem as well. When self-esteem got picked up by the left, it was, um, you know, a lot of feminists picked it up initially. And there were a lot of uh, texts about, you know, if women could build up their confidence, something, 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 overthrow the pa patriarchy. So it's this kind of like these sort of magic bullets that aren't really well thought out um, that become sort of deferral tactics and this implicit kind of recognition that we, we don't have the answers. But somehow, some way, through the promotion of emotions, uh, we can uh, solve these problems. So I think there, there are also similarities in the the way that these, these uh, emotions kind of cycle through public attention. So the way that I conceptualize this is through a cycle of discovery, adoption, expansion, and exhaustion. So the, uh, the new emotion idiom is discovered by people, by, uh, as I said, these sort of evangelical sort of claims makers who see it in a vision or something like that. And they, they campaign to uh, bring it, put it on the public agenda. If they come up with this good rhetorical formulation, uh, then it gets adopted um, by a huge range of institutions in society. It's often quite bewildering how far uh, an issue can actually go. What's really interesting is that it makes, it, makes these kinds of therapeutic fads different than other fads um, because they, they will go everywhere. So like something like, I don't know, Six Sigma, a fad, a, you know, a management fad. You know, there's limits to where that can go, but happiness just like an octopus <laughs> all over the place. Um, and and self-esteem, you know, it became, it, it was adopted in this sort of bewildering array of institutions. We're seeing that now with well-being. It's just, it's just absolutely everywhere. And as they're adopted in this bewildering array of sectors of society, they become expanded. The meanings of these terms become expanded. So happiness starts to expand to uh, encompass everything from, as I said, pro-social spending to healthy eating. You know, uh, Aristotle says a healthy body is as uh, important for a healthy mind. You know, and it just becomes this really expansive discourse. And, and, and as people try to pack into it, um, all sorts of different meanings. And I was actually talking to somebody yesterday who was talking about well-being um, and how if they want to get funding, 
they have to then fit it into this well-being remit. And so they're sitting there going, so like, how is what I'm doing essentially well-being? And they kind of like, in a way, it's this. So then it starts to expand and expand and expand. And then, pe and it, but then people start to say, look, if happiness means everything, then ultimately it means nothing. And then they, but, and then, so it starts to become exhausted, you know, and, and people, and the novelty, you hear about it everywhere. And it's just, you know, there was a, a headline in Newsweek that said, happiness, enough already. You know, it, it, it's everywhere and it loses its novelty and you have critique. But what's interesting, so this is the exhaustion phase. During the exhaustion phase, the, the, the critique becomes more obvious and more pronounced and maybe more effective. But actually, I don't think that these cycles are exhausted because of criticism, because criticism exists the whole way through. You see, right at the very beginning, way back in the 90s, when mindfulness first starts to come into the media, and it wasn't really effective at that time, it was, nobody was sort of evangelical enough about it, um, people were writing to newspapers saying, look, this is a degradation of real Buddhist thinking. This is, you know, it's, it's, it's silly, it's frivolous, and so on. A lot of the criticism people make now, and they'll say, like, it's, you're cultivating excessive self-attention, and that's not what it's supposed to be about. Um, and now people will make that claim, and, they go, and people go, yeah, yeah, yeah. But that claim was made all the way back in the 90s, you know, and that it, it, but it had very little effect. So I think actually what exhausts a lot of these cycles is, um, is it, they lose novelty. They're all over the place. They get expanded to mean everything. And then at the end of the day, they mean nothing. But what's interesting is a lot of the critics are actually the harbingers of the new discourse. And Martin Seligman is a really good example of this because he was a critic of self-esteem. So in his uh, book in the 90s called The Optimistic Child, he criticizes self-esteem as meaning everything. It means everything, so it means nothing. It solves every problem, and therefore it solves nothing. Three years later, he writes a book called Authentic Happiness, where he says happiness solves everything. It means everything. It's going to inoculate, and like even that claim that self-esteem is going to inocu you know, inoculate kids from future problems. You, know, you, you raise their self-esteem, they're not going to have mental health issues down the road. Same claim is being made by happiness. And the same thing is being made about, about positive mental health. So the interesting thing about these fads is that they're never fully exhausted, as I mentioned. They kind of diffuse into the culture, and they become part of our common sense. So even though they're criticized, and no one's going to stand up and say, like, you know what we really need to do and what's going to solve knife crime? We need to have a self-esteem program in schools that will teach kids self-esteem. And, like, and I want you to fund this program for such and such amount. But people will still kind of say that. They'll say, like, well, you know, low self-esteem is probably part of this. Um, and it becomes part of, of the cultural discourse, even though during the exhaustion phase, a lot of research, because it takes time to do research to find out if these things actually work, right? So, uh, like, for instance, emotional intelligence. Um, you had the social and emotional aspects of learning program, SEAL, like rolled out into schools long before there was any evidence, scientific evidence, even though they claimed science as hard as nails says this is going to work. And then, of course, you do the reviews, and it showed that it didn't do anything. There was no demonstrable effect, and in some cases it might have even been negative. And then, then it was just sort of quietly discarded. Um, but at the same time, there's a residue uh, of this common sense that says, of course you have to promote emotional well-being in order for children to learn. Of course you have to have high self-esteem. Even though the, the, the literature, like the, it showed that it doesn't do anything, and in fact it might even be harmful. 
Um, and it's the same thing with mindfulness right now. The evidence is coming out that the, the initial sort of studies were not very good. They were biased, um, done by people who had, were invested in these programs and so on. They, they weren't replicated. In some cases, mindfulness can actually do harm. A lot of people will experience negative effects, including psychosis. Um, and that was something that came out. But now the claims makers who are on their way to something else will sort of you know, shout back, go, well, it doesn't matter anymore because anecdotally, I know that it works. An anecdote is fine. I don't need evidence anymore. It's just common sense. So it, these, these cycles, they produce this sort of common sense, and that sort of prepares the ground for the next big thing, the next cycle, the next fad. Um, and it's, it, it prepares that common sense by, uh, prepares that ground with common sense, but it also prepares it institutionally. Because in the previous round, you paid for all these expensive programs and so on, you created these spaces and institutions, and these people who are wedded to the old fad are hungry for the next fad. They're waiting for the next fad to come. So you've created these spaces and institutions. Okay, so what I think is really interesting about this is that there's an, a deeper story that's being told over and over and over again in each kind of iteration. And uh, it's a story about the relationship between human beings and the problems that face us and the limits of human reason and human nature. And um, they, will they won't live up to their promises. They don't actually solve the problems that they claim to solve. Mindfulness will never bring out a revolution <laughs> against capitalism. But they, why then do we keep telling that same story? And I think that there's this persistent kind of underlying um, cultural belief, but also, I think, economic kind of story uh, that needs to be told and that needs to be understood in order to challenge these cycles. Because what happens is you criticize mindfulness, you criticize self-esteem, you criticize happiness, and then the next thing comes up because the underlying processes that are feeding into them are still there. And until that is undermined, we will keep seeing these cycles of emotion issues that can't possibly solve the problems they claim to solve that deflect attention from those deeper issues and may not do anything at best and may at worst increase, uh, encourage an excessive self-attention that isn't really helpful. Um, and it, that tells people ultimately, if you want to do anything in the world, your sphere of influence is right here. It's, it's in your head. But also, I, I, I used to say this all the time, it tells people like, what you can try to understand, what you can try to act over is yourself, right? All you can change is yourself. Be the change you want to see in the world, right? Um, but actually, I don't even think that's true because increasingly we're told even your own psychology is not really in your control and that even that sphere isn't open to you, isn't something you can rationally grasp. Even that requires some kind of, um, you know, even that people are disoriented toward. Um, um, so I think part of this story ultimately comes down to a perceived gap between, well, I actually, I found some, I was really struggling with how I was going to do this because this, this, this story that I want to tell is so complex and it goes back so far, but actually a lot of the lectures at this, at the Academy have been really helpful because I, uh, in particular sort of, um, Frank's lecture and, uh, and these, this tracing of this cultural pessimism, because I do think that part of this story goes way back to this questioning of the liberal subject, 
to this, this romantic reaction to Enlightenment optimism, that there's this sort of gap between liberal conceptualizations of the rational free-willing subject that is capable of reflecting on our emotions, rationally choosing how to live, and what was perceived as, uh, as a reality of unreason, right? So uh, a lot of people in academia, there's this big sort of, uh, the, the big thrust of the crit critique of this emotion management is through the critique of neoliberalism. I'm not sure if anybody's familiar with that. So people will say, it's an attempt to create the ideal neoliberal self-governing subject. Have you heard that? It's, it's almost like cut and paste. The, it's creating the ideal neoliberal subject who won't call in sick and won't call on expensive services and so on. And people will trace this emotion management unproblematically back to the Enlightenment. It's a continuation of Enlightenment optimization, rationalizing of everything, and so on. But what, le what, what that uh, critique leaves out is why is everyone so sure that the rational subject does not exist? Because if you, and, and that if you look at what liberal enlightenment conceptualizations of the, of the uh, subject were, for instance, around resilience, resilience was something inborn, inbuilt within the individual. It's not something that you know, your betters had to come in and tell you how to do. It was this idea that people had that. And now that is viewed as unrepresentative of the vast majority of people. That we are, uh, that what characterizes us is not our capacity for rationality and, and therefore free will, our capacity to reflect on our experiences and choose how to act. It's our tendency to be led astray, our vulnerability. And that has become the uh, understanding of human nature. So actually, it's not an optimism that you can root in the Enlightenment. It's a pessimism that's come out of a perceived failure of the Enlightenment. And I think that's really the key to understanding. It's not neoliberal. It's post-liberal, if anything. So I think that what happened was, in the same way, so Keenan Malik in his uh, Meaning of Race book makes this argument where he says, during the Enlightenment, we had this ideal of human equality and universalism, that we had like universal human equality that was based on the fact that we all have reason. At the end of the day, we might all be different, we might come from different cultures, but because we have a capacity for reason, we can connect with each other, and therefore there's this kind of universal human nature. But then when people looked out at the world, they saw human difference. They didn't see the wonders of human equality, they saw human inequality. And this gap between the ideal of the subject and the reality of the subject, the ideal of human equality, and the reality of, of inequality needed to be explained. And in its kinder explanation, it was through the language of cultural difference, of the Volksgeist, of this, this celebration of human difference and so on. In its less kind or absolutely horrific orientation, it was eugenics. The reason why we have inequality in society is because um, this, this stock of people is degenerate and we can get rid of these problems by getting rid of these people, right? So you explain inequality as an outcome of something within the human subject, some defect within human beings. And I think this increasingly happens, has happened with human reason. Um, that um, there was this perceived gap between human rationality and what was perceived to be uh, the reality. Um, so in the same way that the, explaining the gap between uh, the reality of equality, or sorry, the ideal of equality and the reality of inequality required the jettisoning of universalism, 
the perceived gap between human rationality and when people looked out in the world and saw apparently irrationality, I'll give you an example of this in a second, uh, required an explanation. And that explanation came in, the, in just giving up on rationality, giving up on the rational subject. And just, I just want to note that um, it's key to understand that both the rational subject, I'm not saying that the rational subject is real and the vulnerable subject is a myth. Um, both and a huge amount in between are possible but not inevitable outcomes of human experience. So Enlightenment thinkers weren't wrong in their pausing of the potential for rationality and freedom in human beings, but I think the economic base of society inevitably put limits on the exercise and sphere and influence of human reason. Um, and by this I don't mean that people didn't, react, uh, didn't act rationally or don't act rationally in their own lives. And this is why I think Karl Marx, and I don't want to go full Lenin on you, but I probably will anyway. I think, <laughs> I think Karl Marx is one of the most interesting and radical liberal thinkers about human subjectivity because his analysis doesn't start out with mistakes in public policy or human greed or human weaknesses at all. It starts with the very same assumptions of, the liberal, of liberal enlightenment subjectivity about rationality. And he actually has even more faith in human subjectivity than most others had during his time. Um, because his conceptualization of the human subject comes from a radical reading of Hegel. Um, and Hegel somewhat unintentionally had thrown open the emphasis on being that had prevailed for centuries with his idea, uh, with his idea of this sort of dynamic human becoming. That, um, uh, that um, so a good example of this comes from uh, Hegel's um, lectures in the philosophy of religion, where he talks about um, the concept of fate. And he says, um, fate in, some, in ancient Greece is something that stands above all. Even the gods are subject to fate, right? It's not like, you know, there's this, there's this supreme being, being that has this rationality that's able to rationally move things around. Even the gods are subject to fate. And then therefore, even though they undoubtedly felt, ancient Greeks, although they undoubtedly felt sorrow and sadness when things didn't go their way, they couldn't feel dissatisfaction. Because dissatisfaction, Hegel says, is what results from a mismatch between what one desires and what is. And fate is simply the world as it is. So they were able to achieve a kind of freedom through freely submitting to fate. Um, and they could say to themselves, there's nothing to be done about it, I must be content with it. They withdraw into pure being, pure rest. Um, and he doesn't, of course, see this as a full freedom, um, but uh, the point, uh, the important point is the way that subjectivity was implicitly thrown open by these ideas. That is, according to Hegel, the ancient mind is fundamentally different from the modern. The former experiences peace in submitting to fate, which is inescapable, whereas the latter experiences, so our, in our time, we experience vexation at disharmony between what is and what ought to be. So that Human beings don't react in the same way depend, uh, in all periods and in all contexts. That when you have different possibilities open to you, you have a fundamentally different subjectivity. And that was the really powerful thing. Because this, it, people really were thrown about by forces beyond their control. You know, famine, disasters, plagues, all characterized the reality of pre-modern life. Fate really was a limit. They were sort of tortured by this feeling of being human, that you have this autonomy and at the same time are thrown about by forces beyond your control. In contrast to Aristotle, Hegel puts forward this idea of human beings as, as history as moving, as constantly becoming. And he's able to do this 
because the productive forces developing around the 17th and 18th centuries had ushered in a belief in inevitable and unending improvement. We started to see a little glimmer of this freedom that hadn't been available to human beings in the past. And therefore, our understanding of subjectivity starts to radically change. You can have vexation at fate because you see a glimmer of possibility in the future. And what really excited the, the radical young Hegelians, one of whom was Marx, was Hegel's contrast between the endless reproduction of nature, the same thing over and over and over again, and the progressiveness of mankind in its search for perfectibility. This perfectibility is this ongoing, never-ending thing. Whereas for the Greeks, it was perfection. It was the realization of this thing that already exists inside yourself. Now it's thrown open, and there's no limit. It's the open subject. Human nature is an open subject. So as human beings, we work on the world. We change it. And in so doing, we change ourselves. We become different when there are different possibilities open to us. So for Marx, while man cannot make history in any way he chooses, as he famously said, but rather within historically specific circumstances, he alone among animals possesses the capacity to understand these historical circumstances and direct them to his conscious ends. At that point, when man is no longer alienated from his desires, history begins. So this incredible optimism of like, <laughs> it's that, you know, this, an open subject means an open future. We're not confined by our human nature because we make our human nature. Now contrast that with the Italian economist and sociologist Wilfredo Pareto, writing in the 19th and early 20th centuries. And I think Pareto is a really interesting character because you could use Auguste Comte, you could use a lot of people, but I think in Pareto is this metaphor for the loss of faith in the human subject. So Pareto is known for building these beautiful mathematical models of equilibrium economies. But what's interesting about him is that he became obsessed later in life with psychology and became more and more pessimistic about human nature. And he criticized economists of his time for not taking into account psychology and behavior in their models and theorizing. But what he meant by human psychology is human defect. For Pareto, when he looked at his models, his, ma his beautiful mathematical models that perfectly show that the economy works in equilibrium, right? There's this endless reproduction, interestingly, just like animals, endless reproduction of this equilibrium. Um, it works perfectly. It's beautiful. It's mathematically sound. He looks at his models and says the whole thing should work. Capitalism should work perfectly. And then he looked out into the world and people kept messing it up. And so he, if people acted rationally, uh, the way the model said they should, then we wouldn't have the problems we see when we look out into society. And yet they consistently failed to behave in ways that the model said they should. Instead of jettisoning his models, Pareto jettisoned the rational human subject. And I think that's, uh, I think for, I think Pareto's a really good metaphor for that because the, the gap between what my theory says and how it should all work uh, and reality needs to be explained. And instead of, um, rethinking reality or rethinking my models, I rethink the human subject. The problem has got to be in you, some defect in you that needs fixing. And it's interesting because for equilibrium economics, you can't actually introduce, like everything has to be introduced, uh, like crisis has to be introduced from the outside. So it's always, it's like a whole theory of human defect and why people keep messing it up. But the beauty of Marx's analysis is that it doesn't start with human mistakes. It doesn't even start with problems. It starts with the same liberal assumptions of rational human action. And he shows how millions of rational decisions add up to something that seems quite irrational and contradictory. 
poverty amid great wealth, as he famously says, situations that would have been inconceivable in all earlier epochs, so crises of so-called overproduction, which is crazy if you think about it, right? Like, how could you have overproduction? Like, when there are people starving, we're talking about a crisis of overproduction? That's insane. And so for Marx, it's a question of how do we release this extraordinary abundance and potential? I can see the future just beyond the horizon. How do we get there? The only way that we can get there is through rationally understanding the forces of history. And, that, and, and he, he doesn't jettison the human subject. He has great faith in the human subject. Um, and uh, there's this great line, I can't remember who it's by, where it says, um, uh, the, where the bourgeoisie at the time was looking at the growth of the working class, and they were like, ugh, horrified by this seething throng. And, and, and Marx and Engels were, they put all their faith in the working class, and they, as, as it grew, they became more optimistic. As the mass grew, they became more optimistic. Now, so now, if I say these things, I sound like I'm completely crazy. Um, and it's difficult to communicate the importance of the loss of this rational critique. And I'm not saying that Marx is absolutely right. I do think he's right about a lot of things, though. But I wish that that is where the debate was. How do we understand the forces of history? Instead, that is just totally cut off. Don't go there at all. In fact, the explicit injunction is, if you look at like the happiness GDP thing, like the, the well-being budget in New Zealand is a great example of this, where they're of course, the economy is still going to grow because you know, social spending depends on an increased amount of, of revenues, which comes from GDP. Um, yeah, forget about that. You worry about you and your families and so on. GDP does not make us happy. It's got nothing to do with you. The economy is depoliticized. It's, 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 what's important is how you feel. It's a really complicated story, obviously, of how we got here. You know, the past century, you know, we have these still sort of resonant experiences of the Great Depression, two world wars, the Holocaust, gulags, this enlightenment faith in progress reflected in Marx's idea of transcendence of the present, transcendence of the present and the triumph of human reason seems perilously naive. As a result, the past half century has been characterized by deep disillusionment with these sorts of big ideas of which Marxian economics is perhaps the archetype um, that promised to explain society which could be yield, yielded to change them for the better. Faith in human reason has come to be seen as the cause of problems, not their solution. The same thing is happening on the right as well. It's weird because Nikos is giving like the same lecture as me, but from the right wing <laughs> side of things. We see this sort of exhaustion with political ideas and this, uh, this uh, spreading out of, of Pareto's really uh, pessimistic outlook. It comes to acquire the, uh, a sort of popular prejudice. So, uh, you know, the new left abandoned completely the economic critique and, and we saw the rise of largely a cultural critique of capitalism, which more or less saw the masses not as a solution, but as the cause of problems. Turning their back on Marx, they were less interested in how to unleash abundance, but on the moral decay that abundance seemed to engender. But without economic critique, placing that beyond the bounds of rational appraisal, the left has essentially agreed with neoliberals that the market represents the limits of human reason, and much beyond that. As I mentioned before, even our, our minds can't be understood, or they're not within our, our ability to understand. But without an understanding of the capitalist system, the left has damned itself to fighting a never-ending culture war. And in the last decades, this culture war has been fought on two fronts, I think, the romantic and the psychological. And it's this 
mixture of this romantic critique of capitalism and a psychological critique of capitalism that I think provides, pr prepares some of the ground for this endless cycling of emotional panaceas. So just briefly in the last minutes, a few minutes, the romantic critique against modernity is this reaction against the tallying up of life in terms of money, the replacement of human craftsmanship with sterile machinery, the coldness of the profit motive. I, but it's always existed within capitalism. Marx called it capitalism's legitimate antithesis. But in the last decades, it's acquired a renewed salience, becoming an essential feature of modern culture. So romantic anti-capitalism essentially represents a cultural protest against modern industrial capitalist civilization in favor of pre-capitalist values. Rejecting industrial society's sterile quantification, the romantic longs for a re-emphasis upon the qualitative or those lost values, things left off the balance sheets of modernity, and for a return to a time real or imagined in the pre-capitalist or less developed capitalist past when those aspects of the world deemed lost were still present. But it's also not trying, it's not about trying to go back to the past, although that does exist, but instead the past is viewed as donors of lost values. We had it in a moment and then there was the fall. And if we could go back to this time before the fall, all would be, all would be well. And actually you kind of see this in the criticism of happiness and well-being discourses where uh, like Barbara Ehrenreich, um, she, she sees it as rooted, rooted in Calvinism. So there was like this, we had like Aristotelian kind of Roman Catholicism that said, you know, during the Dark Ages, this is wonderful, we had it at that moment, she doesn't really say this, but this is the kind of message that you get, is, you know, consume only so much as is good for your evdemonia, for your, your well-being. And then Calvinism throws that open and says, no, infinite accumulation. <laughs> and that was the fall, right? And if we could just go back, Aristotle says evdemonia means living within your means. Right? We want to go back, and if we could just get that value and bring it into the present, we'll solve all these problems. So it's, uh, the idea is that the world has gone too far, become too alienated from human nature and ancient wisdom. Um, and uh, the desire then is for stasis and a re-enchantment of the present through feeling. So that it, and mindfulness is a good example of this. It literally provides a toolkit for sitting there and trying to hold on to the present against the ceaseless motion of history this desire to just freeze the world for a minute and think about your toes or whatever. So the psychological, uh, so now I obviously don't want to be too, obviously the romantic critique, Marx used it himself, right? There's a, it can often represent a healthy critique of the present and it can be quite beautiful and there's a lot of really good stuff that comes from romanticism. The problem is when romanticism is all that there is and there's nothing, there's nothing that tries to penetrate deeper. Um, I think it was in Lenin's, um, obituary of Engels, he says, they taught the working class to know itself and be conscious of itself, and they substituted science for dreams. My favorite line. They substituted science for dreams. Like, we could sit there and dream about the future all we want, but how do we, the only way, you know, like, wouldn't it be great if we could all ride unicorns? And Like, what's, what, what could the future actually be like depends on a rational appraisal of the present. And if you, we can create art that imagines the future, but that it's just a momentary escape, right? And we will never get to a future that we can actually create or have some control over until we use the powers of human reason to try to understand history. And so the, the romantic yearning for re-enchantment of modernity has often taken the form of an emotional or psychological critique of the present, where the vocabulary available to those seeking to politically engage the public has significantly narrowed the psychological critique offers a morally neutral means of connecting with the broadest possible audience. 
But how you define a problem invites a particular solution. If the problems with capitalism are mainly psychological, then the solution is psychological. For instance, the critique of the organization of work for the last several decades has increasingly taken the form of work stress. The argument goes, the modern organization of work makes us mentally ill, it makes us stressed out, and so on. But it's interesting to note that the word stress didn't always exist as a dominant frame for negative experiences to be discussed. But over the last decades, as, as um, collective movements have dwindled, the word stress has become more and more embraced. But what's happened is that what was intended as a very deep criticism of work um, has in practice produced small-scale therapeutic responses. Um, and it's invited and even demanded an in, a greater intervention into the, the sphere of workers' minds. Now, not only do you have to be exploited, you have to enjoy it. You have to fully submit yourself. The psychological critique of, of capitalism also says that capitalism itself causes mental illness. Now, this overlooks the fact that people have not always reacted to exploitation through illness or incapacity. But what it does is it unwittingly reaffirms this diminished view of the human subject as the start and end point of everything that goes wrong. So people become powerless victims of circumstance, more likely to be emotionally damaged than do damage in response to adversity. They need psychological protections, not freedom. Indeed, increasingly, the goal of freedom sounds empty and hollow. If human beings are by their very nature vulnerable, defined by their likelihood of becoming ill and damaged, then freedom isn't a goal, it's a problem. If human beings are vulnerable, our goal is a momentary sense of well-being. And people will say, like, obviously, well-being is the goal of society, right? It's just not even worth saying happiness is the goal of society. I don't think that that's self-evident. We could say that the goal is uh, freedom, right? But say that now, and it's like, you, you want to free these people? They're, you know, you, you, how can you self-determine? How can you decide how you're going to live your life when you can't even take care of your children, or your own mind, right? You're, you're, you're such a basket case. Like, it's, it, it, it's, it's a terrifying thing where we have to be protected from ourselves, from, our, from, from each other. So the psychological critique of capitalism ultimately jettisons the powerful radical potential of open subjectivity in favor of a more closed and determined orientation. And that leaves us with a closed and determined future. And I think this is what ultimately underlies this endless sort of problemization of emotion and emotional solutions for every problem that faces us. You've been listening to Dr. Ashley Frawley give the seventh lecture in our series Culture Wars Then and Now. For anyone who wishes to explore any of the lecture topics in more depth, then do check out the additional readings that are listed in the accompanying notes to the podcast. Or you can visit the Academy at our website, www.theboi.co.uk. Finally, thanks to Will Nesta Sherman, who edited this podcast series. Music